0: Hello all, welcome or welcome back to And Everything In Between. I'm your host, Mela. I recently have started watching the show Suits on Netflix. And so I was in this huge slump for looking for TV shows, and I just could not find anything that I wanted to watch. And then I know Suits got really good reviews, but I was like, mm, I kind of wanted a more teenage TV show. Not so much drama. I mean, I like drama TV shows, but I was like, "Mm, I don't know if this is for me. I started watching it, guys. I literally, I think I've only been watching it for like a week or less than a week and I'm already on season two and the first season was like 12 episodes and each episode's like 40, 42 minutes or whatever and I have just been flying through. I've been watching like three to four episodes per day, which I guess isn't that much because when you think of binge watching a show you think of watching like an entire season in a day but i've been watching so much tv and it feels so good to finally have a tv show that i can watch and binge again because there's so many seasons and yeah so i'm really excited about that i would really recommend suits if you haven't watched it i mean it's super it's rated very highly i'm pretty sure there's a spin-off series are they considering making one i'm not sure but i hope there is a spinoff series because it's so good although i don't know how i feel about spinoff series because i watched breaking bad and then i watched i think um i think i watched el camino but then i didn't watch better call Saul. i don't know why i just don't really want to watch it i mean i know it's supposed to be really good but I don't know, the original series is just, it's so good. Although I might watch Better Call Saul. I think Breaking Bad was like, Breaking Bad was such a a pivotal era in my life because my whole family and I watched that show and it's like all I watched on TV for like weeks at a time. So I kind of need a break from that series, but I might come back to it with Better Call Saul. But anyways, that's the only real update I had besides senioritis is hitting me so hard like I actually feel like school is so optional which isn't true but I'm like everything every assignment I do or every grade I get I'm like you know what does it really matter because I'm graduating in a few months and that's not the right mindset to have I would not recommend adopting that mindset I just it's hitting me hard the senioritis is so real I thought it wouldn't I thought it wouldn't hit me like a truck and it, it hit me like a truck it's so bad but let's get into the subject of today's episode. This is kind of a collection of thoughts. I haven't decided if I want to title it that or title it what I'm going to be talking about because if you have the title as, you know, what- if you have the title as what you're actually talking about in the episode that draws people in right away, a collection of thoughts is probably less likely to entice people, so I have to decide. I mean, you'll know based on the title you see when you click on this episode, but- yeah, I have to decide. Um, but the first topic I want to talk about, which I think is really interesting and I didn't, I've never really thought about it, and that is racial bias in AI. So we know there's the, there's been this huge surge in AI. There's so many different platforms, so many different capabilities of different technologies. You have AIs that will listen to, you know, lectures or youtube videos and summarize things i actually tried it this one video i watched i needed to find key parts in the video that were talking about education and i had already watched the video i just didn't want to go back through and look for parts so i was like well let's see if ai can do this so i copied and pasted the youtube link and i was like tell me specific parts that relate to education and the summary of those parts and it I don't know, it said, sorry, I don't have those capabilities, and I was like, no, I know you do because you've done it for me before. Like, I would, it did it successfully, and then I'd ask it to do it again, but be more specific, and then it'd say it wouldn't be able to do that. So sometimes it's, it's not the most stable thing to rely on, and it didn't really do a great job at finding the best clips that I needed, because it would, like, ignore the criteria I gave it. I don't know. But it does have those capabilities, which I think is really really crazy to think about. But I think a lot of times with these big tech corporations and just technology in general, we don't really think about the ethics of it because technology is so incorporated into our daily lives that we don't think about the actual process behind it and if it's ethical or not. And that's how, you know, big corporations can make money because people don't tend to think about the ethics behind the technology they're using, such as the racial bias in AI. So like I said, I didn't think about this. And then I actually, this whole subject, like this segment of this episode, I was inspired to talk about it because I saw this TikTok video of this Asian couple who entered a photo of themselves into some AI platform, I don't remember which, and they told the AI, make us more attractive. And so what the ai did was it generated a photo obviously again fake photo ai generated photo of these two people but it's like they weren't the same people because they made the people white and the people originally in the photo were asian and someone in the comments said they even made the people in the background white too because presumably there were asian people in the background or at least people with dark hair And then the people in the new AI-generated photo had light-colored hair. And the subjects of the photo, those two people who were originally Asian, were now white with Eurocentric features. And I was like, oh my god, like that is, it's casual racism in AI. And AI doesn't, like, I can't say AI doesn't know it's doing it because AI isn't a living thing. But it's like ingrained into the program. And I was wondering why. So I go to the comments, and someone mentioned this scholar's name, or this expert in this field of racial bias in AI and exploring the ethics behind AI. This woman's name is Timnit Gebru, and I did Google how to pronounce her name before this, and I watched this video with different clips of people pronouncing her name, and everyone pronounced her name differently, so I apologize if I have pronounced her name wrong. but Basically, this woman researches the ethics behind AI. That's what her whole career is surrounding. She writes papers where she explores different parts of AI and different studies that have been done. She conducts studies and you know looks at different studies that have been done on how AI is internally racist and gives, or at least, racially biased advice. So she basically writes papers on that and she's an African-American woman. And recently, well not recently, but well recently within like the last five years, she got fired from Google for refusing to redact a published paper that was basically talking about how AI is sometimes not ethical because of the racial biases. And she was talking about these racial biases in the paper and basically Google The statement they gave was that it was basically portraying AI in a negative light. So they fired Timnit Timnit Gebru, but they say that she quit. But Timnit Gebru says that they fired her. So very interesting that Google is not willing to own up to the fact that they fired this person who they originally hired to work on their ethics team to make sure that the AI Google was producing was ethical, and when she did that, and her paper didn't necessarily support, outright support what Google has been doing with their AI, they fired her. So a lot to say about Google's reputation for that. But now she has her own company called D.A.R.E., which stands for Distributed Artificial Intelligence Research Research Institute. And basically the goal of their company is to just continue on with the research that Timnit Gebru has done with looking at the ethics behind AI. She has a very diverse team of people to make sure that there's, you know, representation and making sure that when they write papers, those papers can be used by big companies or whatever to maybe assess their own AI. That seems like the general goal of their company. And I really, I really like, it. I think there's not enough corporations that are looking at the ethics behind AI and you have a lot of these big corporations leading like Microsoft and Google who are going to be able to cover things up. So even though her company's smaller, I think they're doing great work. And basically, the history of Timnit Gebru, she published a paper called Gender Shades. And this paper, Gender Shades, basically showed that Microsoft and IBM, their their AI programs were perfect or nearly perfect at identifying pictures of white men. However, if you gave them a picture of a black woman, they were not good at identifying that. And it was found out that when they were using the data to train this AI, the images used to train them were mostly of white men so if you're only training ai to recognize white men and you're not giving them a lot of people of color or a lot of women you're basically only presenting them with one type of person they're going to only be used to that one type of skill they're not going to develop skills at identifying other people so that's a very subtle example of racial bias in ai and ai companies their data that they're getting it's from the internet And the internet has a lot of racist and misogynistic information, just a lot of offensive information. So if that's the information that's being fed into AI to train their programs, it's almost like how it happens in humans. This internalized racism, internalized misogyny, internalized ageism, whatever. All of these different discriminatory beliefs, it's almost like in a human if that's the environment you're raised in, that starts to permeate into your mind and you start to subconsciously believe that. So it's kind of weird that I'm comparing AI to a human right now, but in the sense that they're getting information from their outside environment that is, if we said that AI had like a mind, it's kind of warping their mind and perception. So it's going to warp the information that they put out. So if you enter, show me... stereotypical i've seen people put things like videos on tiktok it'll be like show me a stereotypical picture of a successful business person and it's 99 percent of the time a white man and it's like well how does ai have those racial and misogynistic biases it's because of the information given to it which is taken from the internet or which has not been removed of biases and also the info info in datasets that I was reading says that the info in datasets is going to contain information from history where groups were marginalized. So AI is getting information from whatever newspapers or just historical events in which groups were marginalized or stereotypes were made about certain groups of people and it's becoming ingrained into... AI to use that when it's giving opinions and when it's giving information. So it's really interesting. It's like you need data from the internet to train AI, but the data from the internet is not filtered. And what this article was saying that I was reading and what Timnit Gebru was saying is this information is biased. So if you have a biased input that you're feeding into the AIs, you're going to get a biased output when the AI is giving its opinion or whatever. So I was really intrigued by this, and that's basically what Timnitz Gebru's research has been arguing, this paper Gender Shades has shown, and I wanted to see more examples of when we see racial biases in A.I. So I googled it, and I found out there was a beauty A.I. contest, and it was the first time only A.I. has judged a beauty contest. And there were 60,000 applicants, 11 of which were black. However, there were no black winners out of 45. And you'd think, you know, okay, if 11% of the applicants were black, there should be whatever, 11% of the 45 winners or somewhere around that number. And there were no black winners. So, what is that to say about the racial biases of whatever AI was used to judge this? whoever was feeding information into this beauty AI contest that determines who was the most beautiful was probably overly feeding them pictures of European people and ingraining European beauty standards into this AI instead of equally representing people. So again, it all comes down to this issue of representation. People of color, especially black women, as Timnit Gebru's research has showed, they are not equally represented in the field of AI. And so it's like you have racism from the real world transferring into online, which is really unfortunate because AI is relatively new. I mean, we've had AI with like facial recognition, like Apple's facial recognition technologies AI, but it's been around for a while. But in terms of, you know, how long humans have been around, it's very, very new. So the fact that it's already been tainted with racism and misogyny and sexism, and big corporations are trying to cover that up by firing people like Timnit Gebru, who are trying to advocate for more equality in technology. I mean, it's really disappointing, and it just shows the big corporations' values. They just do not value representation. I also was looking at something, and this Time article that I read mentioned it, it was using AI in criminal sentencing and how it's biased towards a lot of times it will sentence, the, I think the Time magazine said it sentenced It sentenced black people four times more, at a rate four times more than it sentenced white people because of racial biases. So I wanted to hear or read more about this, I guess. So I saw this interview on NPR with this expert named Sophia Noble, who is a gender studies and african-american studies professor at ucla and she also is an expert in internet studies is what npr's website said and she was basically saying how when people use ai in criminal sentencing which i think that's terrifying i don't think anyone but a person should be judging that but She said if you have certain areas or certain zip codes that have a history of over-policing, there's obviously going to be over-arresting in those areas. And a lot of times, based on history, we know that over-policing occurs in primarily Black and Hispanic areas. So if AI is fed this information, like I mentioned before, the information, the data set that is used to train it is based on historical facts or information from the internet, So when you give information like that that shows this history of more arrests in Black and Hispanic areas, that's going to influence AI's opinions when they are sentencing criminals. And unfortunately, it's been shown in multiple studies that Black and Hispanic people will be sentenced by ai or ai will give the opinion that they should be sentenced more than white people because of this history that it's being fed so that leads to the question is it really moral or really ethical to use ai in situations like criminal sentencing where you have people's lives at stake or in situations where you have ai as doctors we know historically women are not listened to As much, especially black women, are taken seriously as much by people in the medical field. So how will that influence AI? And I just found that really fascinating, but also heartbreaking, the fact that we have this opportunity to create technology that could do good for the world, and we're bringing our own issues into it. And I'm not sure, I mean, I can't speak on how you would avoid that if you have to give information to ai i mean you have to somehow omit information that could lead to biases i'm not sure how you would go about doing that but it's really disappointing to see and i just think overall i don't like the idea of ai doctors or ai judges because it's not actual people and I don't know, I just, I really, I don't like that. And it also just shows, goes to show that these big technology corporations who are controlling the dominant AI companies, they're founded and run by wealthy white men. And there's not enough representation of people of color, of women, of people of all ages, whatever. There's not enough diversity and that's being reflected in the technology that these companies are producing. I just I find this whole subject so fascinating like you wouldn't think that technology could have well I wouldn't think I mean maybe you thought that but I just I don't know I guess it was my own privilege I never thought about racial biases in AI but I don't know something interesting to think about and you should definitely check out Timnit Gebru and her company I find it really cool. I was looking through the website last night. I've actually, I find the subject really interesting. I was reading a bunch of articles and I just, I find her company very interesting. And it said that, I think the Time Magazine article said that she, her company has received $3.7 million in funding, which unfortunately is only a penny compared to these multi-billion dollar companies like Google and Microsoft and their funding. their AI companies, but it's important that we have these smaller companies and give funding to smaller companies who are actually working to explore the ethics behind AI and they're publishing papers to convince people, you know, AI has racial biases, how can we avoid these, how can we fix these. The next subject I want to talk about in this episode is the struggles of having mixed heritage. And I don't really think I've talked about this on here before, or if I have talked about it, it's been very brief, but I am part, I'm Middle Eastern, which I guess you say is still white, but I'm like European white and Middle Eastern white, and I'm also Jewish. So my dad is Jewish, and my mom is Middle Eastern. Some people say... Jewish as an ethnicity, I've never said that. I always just say, you know, my dad is white, my mom, I say my mom is Middle Eastern, but when it comes to people asking me, what's your ethnicity, I literally dread answering that question. And I think it's something that a lot of people with mixed heritage can understand because it literally feels like I'm rattling off a list. And, you know, I can't just say white because ethnicity is a little bit more specific. And I always feel like one of those people who's like, okay, I'm 5% Italian, I'm 7% Norwegian, like, but I do feel like my Middle Eastern identity is a big part of me. However, whenever I have to tell people, oh, what's your ethnicity? Where does your family come from? I just, I don't feel enough of anything. And whenever I bring up something about my Middle Eastern culture, I always feel guilty for some reason, like I'm an imposter like, oh, I can't say too much about this because I'm not really fully Middle Eastern. I'm only a little bit, even though that's literally half of my identity. And I actually talked about this in my college essay, my main college essay, a little bit. I was basically talking about how I feel like I live a life in lists because when I list off my ethnicity, I have to say oh, I'm white or I'm European, I'm Middle Eastern, I'm Christian, I'm Jewish because my mom is Christian, my dad's Jewish. So I just have always felt very, I don't know, just guilty. And I feel like other people with mixed heritage feel this way. And I actually have a story that, and since this happened, I've felt even more like, ooh, just I don't like I don't like answering, oh, what's your ethnicity when people ask me, and basically what happened is my school has a club that is dedicated to the different cultures people have, and in this club, we had to go around and share what our ethnicities were, like, because it's celebrating all these different cultures, so obviously, you know, we have to share what cultures we come from, so I couldn't just say, you know, my race. So I was like, okay, I guess I'll say Middle Eastern, but specifically Syria and Armenia, because my, well, my grandpa is Armenian, which you could count that, you could say European and Middle Eastern. It's it's very, you know, because it's a transcontinental, uh, transcontinental country. So I was like, well, what do I say for that? Like, I don't know what to say. And so I was like, well i'm jewish and i'm syrian and i'm armenian i was literally like i could feel my voice getting smaller my posture getting smaller and i see two people in the club like whisper to each other look at each other and kind of laugh and i'm like you don't get it like you don't get what it feels like to not feel one part of anything like i feel like I'm two two halves, but I don't feel like I'm enough of anything, and I just feel like it's something not many people understand. My friends don't really understand it because, I don't know, I just, I don't know what it is. I just, oh, it's something that I always think about, and I feel like other people, only people who have this mixed heritage can relate. I don't even say I'm mixed because I'm not mixed races but I'm very distinct heritages, you know, like Middle Eastern's very different from European culture. I wrote a story about this called Family Dinner, and basically the story's on my podcast website and everything in between podcast.wordpress.com, and in this story, it's a memoir, and basically it's about this one dinner I had on my 16th birthday when My family and I, it was my mom's side of the family, so my Middle Eastern side of the family, we were basically sitting around the table and then my uncle asked, what do you guys say on surveys? When you have to answer surveys, what race do you say you are? Is there an option for Middle Eastern? Do you just say white? Do you put other? Because there's usually not an option for mixed. Because I never, we never really talked about that, you know? It's kind of something that, it's a personal choice and it Doesn't seem like a big deal, but it kind of, whenever I take those surveys, I was talking about in the story or the memoir how it makes me feel like I have to choose one part of my identity. And we were talking about, we had like a wide variety of people and answers they put. You know, we had some people that said they put white, some people put other, some people like specify. A lot of people just put white, but I just, I don't know, I always feel like I like when I answer those surveys I don't know I feel like it honestly depends if they have an option for other I usually just put other and then sometimes I'll put white it just depends honestly but I feel like this story and the memoir and the experience of talking with my family members at that dinner captured the confusion and the uncertainty and having mixed heritage and how you kind of feel like you have to choose one part of yourself sometimes. And I hate that feeling, and I hate how, you know, sometimes when I talk about my Middle Eastern side, I talk about dishes, you know, Syrian dishes that my grandma makes, or I talk about Arabic, or how I know some words in Arabic because my grandparents speak fluent Arabic. And my mom, she understands Arabic, but she can't speak it very well. But my uncle, my mom's brother, is fluent in Arabic. So it's kind of, you know, it's kind of differs between them. And if I bring any of that up, I feel instantly judged because it's like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, like I'm not enough Middle Eastern to be talking about my Middle Eastern culture. And I think people need to eradicate that sense of shame or making people feel shameful. I guess it's not easy to stop feeling shameful I don't know if it's just me who feels, I don't know if shame is the right word, it's just, it's like almost like embarrassment, like, oh, I'm I'm not enough of one thing, this isn't really my culture, it's like imposter syndrome within your own culture, and is the most difficult feeling to have, and I hate feeling like that, but I think people around me sometimes make me feel like that, or I'll see someone exchange a look and I'll be like, oh my god, they're judging me, but like, this is who I am. I don't know I don't really have a point to what I'm saying I guess it's just to make you feel like you're less alone if you have mixed heritage to know that someone else feels the same way and it's always something I wanted to talk about on here because I feel like I don't talk about I feel like I don't talk about myself as a person like I talk about my experiences but not necessarily who I am so yeah that was just a little bit about who I am The next subject I want to talk about is the lack of third spaces in America, especially. I can't speak for other places, but especially where I live, I live in Ohio and I live in like a fairly large city in Ohio, not like a big city like Cincinnati or something, but a fairly large suburban city. And you'd think that if you live in a suburban place or you live in a kind of city type atmosphere there'd be a lot of independent businesses or these things called third spaces but there's really not and I want to talk about that when I say third spaces I mean places besides school or work where you can socialize with other people so an example of a third space would be like a coffee shop or a library or a community garden someplace where you can gather that's not you know school work And where I live, we don't really have many of those places. We have a ton of restaurants, and I'm not counting restaurants as third spaces because you can't just go there and hang out. You know, you're paying a lot of money. Your primary purpose is to eat. So I wouldn't really count a restaurant as a third space because we have a lot of restaurants and a lot of them are chains or they're owned by someone who owns a lot of other restaurants. So the goal of having a restaurant is to serve food. It's not necessarily to create a space for people to hang out. When I say third space, I mean you can socialize with other people for long amounts of time. At a restaurant, you know, you eat your meal and then you go. So I I don't know. I guess it's an opinion thing if you'd count that as a third space. I personally don't. When I think of third spaces, I think of places like bookstores, especially bookstores, independent bookstores, because you can sit and hang out with friends and you don't have to be bothered. And it's a place where you can come together and just chill. You don't usually, you can just hang out there. There's a lot of chairs you can sit on meant to talk and read and be in someone else's company. So that's what I consider a third space. And where I live, we have a new cafe that just opened up. And this cafe, it's in independent cafe kind of it has a few other locations but it's not like starbucks or something that's a big franchise or not franchise uh conglomerate or not conglomerate i don't know what the right word maybe franchise yeah franchise but this cafe is always packed whenever i go in there it is always so crowded all the tables are always taken there's always people sitting there and you know what i notice I go in and half the people have finished their food, but they're just sitting and talking because we don't have these places in my community that you can gather, these independent stores. Think third spaces, a lot of them are independent locations that are meant to bring people together and create a sense of community. And I was talking about this with the people in my English class because I'm going to relate it to some film that we watched in my English class in a few minutes. So we were talking about this in relation to the film we watched, and someone said, oh, well, that's why the library is so crowded. I was like, that's so true. My local library, it's like there's so many kids my age there, teenagers, college students, and people are, you know, doing work and hanging out with their friends because the purpose of being at the library isn't to buy something and go, like being at a restaurant. It's to be with people. It's to spend time together yes, you're studying, but you're maybe studying with friends or you're browsing the bookshelves with your friends. You're surrounded by other people. And that's why our library is so insanely crowded. And I was like, that is so true. And the location of our library is in, it's by the cafe and it's in a place where it's pri. Pre- it's in a place where it's predominantly restaurants. It's comprised of restaurants. I mean, there's pretty much like five restaurants, maybe even, yeah, like five to seven restaurants for every store there. So when you have a place that allows people to just get together, it becomes really crowded. And I think that's a sign that there is a lack of third spaces. And there's so many restaurants being opened, but like I said, I don't really count that as a third space. There's not enough independent stores that allow for people to just come together. And I think that's because of capitalism and franchises. I was talking with my dad about this too. And I was like, I really wish we had an independent bookstore where we lived. I mean, obviously there's a lot of third spaces in big cities, like in Columbus. I don't live in Columbus. But in Columbus, there's going to be a lot of third spaces because cities have a lot of smaller businesses or family-run businesses. But suburbs, you know, there's less there's less businesses in that area. So you have to be, and there's less people. So you have to really be a successful business to have a business in the suburbs. You have to be successful to have your business in the suburbs. So I think my dad said there's no independent bookstores where we live because of these gigantic companies like, you know, Barnes and Noble or like Amazon who take all the profits who are able to sell their products for much cheaper than an independent place would be able to sell them and also an independent bookstore yes it's a third space but in the suburbs we probably can't have it because there's not enough people that are going to be flowing in and out of that space which is why you see a lot of these independent places in cities like I said And I find it really sad because I know I would love an independent bookstore, like I can just imagine having a comfy couch, a bunch of comfy chairs, little, you know, open mics for authors to come share their works, and there's just not those places. I was looking for open mics near me where I live, actually, because I wanted to go, you know, read some of my writing out loud. And there's really nothing. Genuinely, I looked for like 20 minutes. I could, I found one place and that was like 20 minutes away from me, but they only do it once a month and I already missed it for January. So I just, we need places that bring people together. And I think also it's because the U.S. specifically is a very individualistic country. It's like, do your own thing, get successful on your own, and human connection is not as valued. That's not really a core value in U.S. culture. So I think maybe that could be a reason why. But like I said, I was watching this film, Living on One Dollar. It's actually a documentary with my English class and basically the premise of this documentary was that these college students went to Guatemala and their goal was to see if they could survive on, it's called living on $1. So basically surviving on $1 a day. However, because a lot of the, a lot of people living in this area they went to in Guatemala was a very impoverished area. People didn't have, they didn't have official jobs. Like they weren't paid by some higher up. They were working for, you know, individual families or whatever. So they weren't guaranteed pay every day. They would pick little piece of paper out of a hat that said how much money they'd make for that day, ranging from zero dollars to nine dollars. You know, even nine dollars, that's not a lot of money to live on. So they contracted diseases, they became very malnourished, they lost a lot of weight, and that's what people in that area in Guatemala live like every day. Kids can't get the education they need, they're too tired to play, they can't get education because they have to work on these farms, and then families have to have a lot of kids to work on the farms to bring them money, but that also means the more children your family has, the less money or the less resources you have to give to each child. So you need more kids to work the farm, but you're not going to be able to give them the food that they deserve, which is, you know, there's, that's completely out of the, residents' control, but that's basically what Living on One Dollar explored. It's a really good documentary. It's on YouTube. I would highly recommend it. But connecting this to my point with the lack of third spaces, even though this is a very impoverished area, you think that people might be selfish and they'd fend for themselves and they wouldn't give up their resources to help other people. But it was really the exact opposite even those very impoverished, the community members did things for one another. They hosted meals to join together, which is an example of a third space. They created third spaces for their communities, like they had uh, the market, they had a very vibrant market that people could come together. And it wasn't like in the US, you kind of stick to yourself, you get your stuff and you go. You go with people, you talk with the vendors, you, know, you negotiate with them. It's very community-dependent. Everyone selling things at the market are people who are selling their own products. It's all, you know, the citizens, the residents selling their own products, selling their farmed goods, selling something they sowed. It's not big corporations with products on the shelves and you don't have to interact with people. So I found it really interesting that you had this contrast. The US, though very wealthy, We don't really have this human connection and in this area in Guatemala, though not wealthy at all, you have this huge sense of human connection and relying on other people and a huge sense of community and I really wish the US was more like that. I feel like we've become so used to having living selfishly almost, like not talking to other people, you know, serving only yourself and when I think about people who develop public spaces, when we develop houses, we don't have these community areas for people in the neighborhoods to get together. And I saw this video of this housing development. It was really cool. I think it was either a potential housing development or a real housing development, but they had like a community garden. That's an example of a third space. It brings people together. They had a community garden and... Another thing is they had a cul-de-sac. The the neighborhood was a cul-de-sac. Call me stupid, but I think third space, or I think cul-de-sacs are an example of a third space. I remember my cousin has a cul-de-sac, and so we'd go, you know, scootering across the cul-de-sac and playing outside, and that brings people together because you have this common shared area where all the kids can go hang out. And... I just, I really wish more neighborhoods had that. I really wish neighborhoods had built in things that brought people together. I remember I was in California and we passed by this housing development. This is a very wealthy housing development, so not feasible for many American neighborhoods. But in this housing development, they had like a community, it was like a community tennis court or a small pool. When my mom was growing up, her neighborhood had a neighborhood pool. And it wasn't like you lived in an extremely wealthy neighborhood. But they just had this, you know, small neighborhood pool. The kids could come together. And I just find that so much better than just having your own pool and not having any space at all to meet your neighbors. And that's a small example of a third space. But we need that human connection. It's important to know the people around you. I feel very strongly about that. And the reason why when you have urban renovators like renovating different areas, the reasons why certain areas do so well and they prosper is because they create a bunch of, you know, outdoor third spaces for people. In California, there were so many third spaces. They blocked off this one road and the road had a bunch of picnic tables, there were shops up and down the road, and in the middle, a bunch of picnic tables, flowers, places for people to congregate and be together. We need more of that instead of just roads everywhere, no places to meet people, we stay to ourselves. And I think that's also because of America's dependence on cars and building infrastructure around cars. I think that's a huge problem. But I mean, the US is also a gigantic country, so you need highways to get places. It's it's finding a happy medium. And I think that's why people love cities so much. And I've talked about this in previous episodes. And that's why I definitely want to live in a city or right outside of a city because there's such a sense of community there because of all the third spaces and a lot of times cities, they build around people instead of building around cars and that's what draws people in and you have a ton of third spaces, but again, if people are moving to cities and you don't have as many people in the suburbs, then it's hard to have your own independent store, so... I can't say too much about that because I'm not an expert on urban planning, but I do find it really interesting, and I think successful urban planning has such a long-lasting impact on the generations that are going to live there, and it's so important. The last topic I want to discuss in this episode is the declining creativity in the film industry. I was just thinking about this, but everything is a franchise literally everything, especially with like Disney and Pixar, it's a franchise. Toy Story. We have four Toy Stories. We do not need a fifth Toy Story. They ended the fourth Toy Story on such a perfect note, you know, giving the toys to another kid. Why do we need a fifth Toy Story? Moana. I just found out they're creating a Moana 2. We don't need a second Moana. Some movies are better left as standalone movies. In fact, I think Frozen was better left as a standalone movie. I didn't like the second Frozen. I don't think they need a Frozen 3. They should have just left it at just Frozen. And the whole thing that Disney does, turning the Disney movies, like the original animated Disney movies, into live-action films, I think... I I don't know. I think the only film I would like to see live-action is... Tangled. I think Tangled would be awesome live action. I don't really want to see Princess and the Frog live action because I think the animation of Princess and the Frog was so, so beautiful. No live action film can ever compare to the original animated film and I think it would take away from the animated film's beauty. I don't know. I don't need it. I don't think we needed a live action Cinderella. I don't think we need a live action Snow White. I think we should leave the old Disney movies as old Disney movies. The only one I really want is Tangled, but I miss when Disney spent their money on making original creative movies. I mean, Moana was a hit for a reason. Because it's new, because it's creative. It's a modern princess story. Same with Frozen. Like, that's where Disney excels at. And I really, I don't think they need to be creating every movie they've ever made into a franchise with its own film series. Inside Out, I will say I'm super excited for Inside Out 2. I think that's going to be really cool because it's going to be such a different type of plot since she'll be a teenager now, so I am excited for Inside Out 2. Despicable Me, I have to say. Do we need four Despicable Me's? Probably not, but it brings the company so much money which obviously is the main reason all of these franchises exist and I think the franchises I mean the continuation of all of these movies into making them into gigantic franchises it's all about the money and it's easy and it's safe I think the biggest thing is that it's safe and when Disney or it wasn't Disney was Pixar they came out with or maybe it was Disney, Pixar, I don't know. They came out with the Elemental movie, which wasn't very successful. Part of the reason it wasn't successful was because we live in this time of franchises, also because the release date was around way more popular movies. But again, those movies were part of a franchise and people knew what they would be getting into when they saw those movies. But the Elemental movie, it's a new plot. It's creative. And unfortunately, a lot of people like to stick to the series that they know and they don't want to go see a new movie that doesn't have its own series that they don't know they already like or already don't like. So, it's really unfortunate. I think it's part partly consumers but also partly Disney for just wanting to make the most money and knowing that the franchise is probably going to make them the most money. I really wish, though, and I think we do need, more unique and standalone movies like soul i've already talked about how much i love the pixar movie soul that was an amazing movie the plot was incredible it was so unique and because it was so unique it had such a big impact elemental i did start watching it i have to admit it may have been you know a framing bias i saw bad reviews of the movie and i was like and then i went into watching it so i probably already had predetermined opinions about the movie from those reviews i looked at but I will say, it did feel a little bit childish to me. I don't know. I didn't really like the movie. I only watched like a half hour and then I stopped watching it. But like Zootopia, I don't really- we don't need a Zootopia 2. Like that was perfect as it was. I mean, I don't know. I just think Disney likes to play it safe by going with what they know will make them the most money, but sometimes you've got to take risks because all of these movies- that have become so successful that are now franchises, those were once risks. Those were once standalone movies that Disney had to take a risk on. And, you know, sometimes, a lot of times, that risk pays off, especially with Pixar. Is Pixar owned by Disney? Because I'm saying Disney and Pixar, but then I always see them together, so I'm not sure. And, like, Pixar movies are on Disney's website. So I'm assuming Pixar is owned by Disney then. But, yeah, that's my opinion on that. Unfortunately, we do live in a world of franchises in terms of stores and in terms of creativity. But anyways, that was this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed and I'll see you next time.